One time I was uh, living as a as a Buddhist monk, as a bhikkhu in Burma, and I was practicing with Sayada Upandita. And he was uh, very particular about how the refuges and precepts were chanted. And he made us do the homage, the namotasa, over and over till we got got it how he wanted it. He really wanted it, the tasa bhagavato, he wanted that to really go together. Didn't want to break in there. And uh, we spent a lot of time saying tasa bhagavato. So I'm not that particular. I won't make us do it over and over again. I think it's the spirit that's uh, more important there. And to really have a sense of what we're saying when we make this uh, chant together. I was talking to someone a little earlier today and the fact that I was giving a talk uh, came up in the conversation and uh, I was asked if this would be, if this was going to be one of those boring talks full of sutta quotations and um, I realized that yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Not that that's inherently boring, but um, but yes, (laughs) I noticed that that's true. And, uh, and I was thinking, you know, if I have any reputation in, in the teaching role at all, it's, you know, maybe a little bit for having a sense of humor, for liking to tell stories and do, you know, chant and things like that. And, and uh, not necessarily known for giving uh, boring talks full of sutta quotations. But, um, you know, every once in a while it happens. And... Uh, you know, some time ago I decided, I, I kind of made a, kind of turned my mind in such a way that I, I said to myself, if one person hears one useful thing, then that's a successful Dharma talk. And, and this has increased my chances of success uh, quite a lot uh, to hold it that way. But I really do feel that way. So um, I think there, there might be one thing that one person in here will find useful and um, yeah it's possible that that will not happen I realize that and I'm prepared for that I'm, I'm okay with that I have permission to uh, to have that happen I'm also known for uh, long rambling riffs at the beginning of talks that uh, keep me from actually beginning the subject that I have in mind and then and then having to you know, massively edit my notes, which I don't bother to look at much anyway, <laughs> um, in order to get to some kind of conclusion. It's said, and I'm not sure if this is where this is found, um, but it's said that after his enlightenment, the Buddha surveyed the world and he, um, I know it's in one of the books about the life of the Buddha, and he's, he looked and he saw beings who were really trying desperately to find ways to be happy, to find happiness, and at the same time doing the very thing that caused them to suffer, it took them away from finding 
peace or happiness. And this was at least in part an aspect of the motivation that led him to to start teaching because initially he was disinclined to do that. He, He reflected and he thought, no one will get it and it'll just be vexing for me to even try. But then he was he was uh, asked to teach for the welfare of beings and uh, one of the a deva a brahma a deity came and said there are those with little dust who may may hear may be able to hear and put this into practice and so so he decided to teach and so in this surveying the world and seeing this happening this movement of beings trying to find happiness and doing the thing that took them to suffering. He was describing, you could say, uh, the human condition and the rolling on of samsara, this rolling on of the wheel of becoming. And in this regard, things have not changed much since he was living almost 2,600 years ago. And we can see this same scenario playing itself out all over the world. And, and I think it's good and helpful to remind ourselves that all of the shenanigans that we and others get up to are a reflection of this, this pursuit of happiness. That even those beings who seem to be doing everything to cause themselves and others to suffer they, they want happiness just as much as any one of us does. They want to find this, this, uh, this kind of um, place of ease in the heart, all the ways we might think of that. And, and there just is a lot of confusion about what might lead to that. You know, if we're not looking for it in the right place, in the right way, we're not likely to find it. And I think any one of us who would choose to spend time at a place like the Forest Refuge and to, to act on this intention and, and this valuing of this practice is motivated by this same search for happiness, this longing for a deeper kind of meaning or a deeper connection to our life or different ways, longing for peace, for ease, for some kind of real contentment, sense of non-struggle, non-resistance, all of the ways that that might be expressed. And if we have committed to walking this path for the long haul, then I think it's also become clear to us that what we're interested in is... uh, not just feeling a little more ease in our lives, but we're, we're after something deeper, more profound, you might say. This uh, lasting kind of contentment that is, is not so dependent on the conditions in the world. Happiness of peace, you could say. And the Buddha spoke about this so his his orientation to this this search had to do with freedom from suffering and in one uh, sutta he said 
now and before I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This understanding of this and, and through that understanding, releasing the causes of suffering. This liberation from this endless wandering in the search for, for meaning, for happiness, for contentment. And we can see this over and over uh, in, in this life. We might have the view of seeing this over countless lifetimes. Either way, it's equally meaningful. This is uh, part of the opening verse of the Satipatthana Sutta that I mentioned last week. This uh, teaching with the uh, very uh, detailed meditation instructions. Practitioners, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. It might sound pretty good. But it also could lead to some confusion. Does this mean that I will never feel sadness or sorrow? Never again feel any painful sensations or experience grief? That seems to be what those words are saying. Won't have this, and this it, it can kind of point to seem to be pointing to some kind of some kind of state of detachment that's so removed as to be almost in a state of numbness or not feeling anything. Never any sadness or sorrow. No painful sensations. No grief. But the Buddha didn't live that kind of life. He wasn't numb. He was fully engaged with life and he had his share of unpleasant feelings, painful sensations. He experienced a sense of loss at the death of those who were dear and near to him. He had chronic back problems. He had a lot of dukkha in the body, unpleasant sensations. He had to get old and sick and die. like all of us will. So I think it's important that we get some sense for what he might have been pointing to with this statement. Because this practice is not somehow leading us to escape from life or to a, to a state where we don't feel anything. That's not, that's not where we're heading with this practice. And it's not about gaining some kind of control over life, over our experience, so that we only experience what we, what we want to or what we like. We're not getting that out of this. It's, it's something else. It's about a different kind of happiness, a kind of freedom that we could think of as, a, as, a, as an independence, a kind of independence, you could say. So this exploring what we might mean by happiness, I think, is really, really useful because I think there's, there's a lot of confusion about what, what do we mean by to be happy? 
What do we really mean by that? There's a lot of deep conditioning, some confusion and deep conditioning woven into our perceptions that we often don't see at all. So this evening, I want to begin, uh, take one one uh, look at this question, what do we mean by happiness? Investigate this in terms of, of what is called Vedana in Pali. Mindfulness of Vedana is the second foundation or the second establishment of mindfulness. Last week I, I spoke mainly about the first establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness directed to the body. It's interesting, I think, that of these four establishments of mindfulness that include and encompass all aspects of our experience, that one of them is just this, this aspect of, of life, this feeling tone, Vedana, usually translated as feeling, feeling tone, as I just said. Sometimes I've, I know some teachers have translated it just as sensation. These words feeling, sensation, they have a broad range of meanings in the English language. Feelings can mean so many things. Emotions and spare sensations and a point of view. I feel this way about it. All kinds of ways. And the Pali word Vedana is so specific and it's this specificity and, and kind of narrowness of that definition is part of what makes it so powerful as a, as a, a thing to investigate, to look at in our, in our experience. So as you all know, this word refers, refers to the um, qualities of either pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which... We use neutral as a shorthand for that. That um, is an aspect of, of every experience. It arises in every moment over and over. It's constantly arising, passing away. And it arises with all contacts, physical sensations and contacts in the mind, in the mind, in mental contacts. So um, all the six, six sense spaces, you know, we... We, we talk about six sense doorways in this tradition. So the five of uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and, and bodily sensations. And then the mind, we, we call that a, a, just the sixth sense space. They're, they're all um, seen in the same way. So all the, the thoughts, emotions, mental activities, mental experience. So with every moment of contact, there's this feeling. So for example, if I ring this bell here. There's a feeling tone that arises in relation to that contact at the ear door. Maybe you noticed it. I hit it fairly hard. It was pretty loud. Maybe that was 
somewhat jarring, might have been experienced as unpleasant. Maybe you like the sound of the bell. This this happens in all kinds of ways. Certain thoughts have a certain feeling tone, pleasant or unpleasant. Other sensations in the body, sounds, smells, tastes, and so forth. A lot of the time this feeling tone is not noticed, especially if it's in the neutral range or it's kind of taken for granted, or often it's assumed to be an aspect of or uh, an integral part of the experience. We tend to think it's, it's in the experience. It's pleasant. It's unpleasant. We don't see that it's a mental arising. It arises in the mind. If we look at it, we'll see it's not at all fixed. So for example, the ringing of the bell. Anyone experience that as pleasant? Willing to raise their hand. Anyone experience it as unpleasant? Anyone as neither pleasant nor unpleasant? So all, all three of those. And maybe a combination. Maybe it started out unpleasant, but as it got quieter, maybe just the fact that it was disappearing was pleasant. <laughs> you know, it's not, it, it's, it's not just one thing. And it's not the same. At another time, that same experience might be pleasant for you. All kinds of ways that we might see this. I have a friend who is someone I teach with, a colleague of mine. He's a good person. He's, um, you know, someone I have great, I have a lot of respect and affection for, for this person. And uh, I've taught with him for years now. But um, he happens to hold a, a very misguided view that um, raisins are, are uh, really uh, unpleasant, and especially to eat, and especially if those raisins have been put into hot uh, cereal, like oatmeal. Uh, this is actually, in his view, is a food crime, and should be, um, you know, there should be a rule, a law, really, against it. Now, I happen, through many years of... of uh, uh, investigation study, I have discovered that oatmeal without raisins is actually poisonous, um, not safe to consume. And so, uh, you know, the raisins in, in this uh, story are, are not, they're innocent. The raisins are innocent. All raisins are always innocent. <laughs> And this is really the, uh, this is the main key point of my talk, <laughs> is the innocence of the raisins. I need you to bear this in mind that we've, we've hit the high point here. If you remember one thing, <laughs> this is it. Now, this, this after lunch today, we had um, something new for me, New England Powerballs. Um, oh, I just had, I just thought, this is a play on the fact that there's a lottery. I bet this is, has to do with the lottery. There is a. Does anyone th- think that that's true? That the cook was playing around. Anyway, I ate a New England Powerball, and it was. I found it pleasant. 
Did anyone else eat their New England Powerball? Did anyone find that to be a pleasant experience? Did anyone take one bite and say, not for me, unpleasant? Yeah, okay. (laughs) So again, now if I were to eat 10 or 15 New England Powerballs in a row, I would probably feel very differently about that 15th one, and I might never want to see them again. So it's not, it's not a fixed thing. I, I don't think I need to give any more examples of this. <laughs> Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that this feeling tone and our reaction to it is the same thing. Often people think that the, the, the not liking, the aversion to the unpleasantness, for example, is the same thing as the unpleasantness. We miss the fact that, that they're not the same or the pleasant feeling and the liking of it, uh, the wanting of it, that they're, they're the same, but, but they're not. There's one is conditioning the other. But it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish because of how quickly these processes happen in the mind. So there's contact, feeling tone, and the response to it very quickly, often. There's not a big, it's not like contact, feeling, liking. I mean, sometimes when the mindfulness is really refined and steady, it can seem like things slow down (laughs) and there's some more space in there. But it's hard to see these. I think sometimes we think that, as I was talking about earlier, that somehow the goal, the result of this practice will be that we don't feel these things anymore. That the equanimity of the enlightened mind is a state of indifference or numbness and, and that we won't, we won't feel pleasant or unpleasant. It'll all just be neutral. Now, it's true, and many of us have seen that the, the breadth of experiences that have fall into the, the range of neutral can sometimes seem to expand quite a lot. That can be the experience at times. But these, these feelings still occur. They're happening right now as I speak, as I give this boring talk. You might notice it. Maybe just the sound of my voice. It's okay with me if the sound of my voice conditions aversion in your mind. I've been where you're sitting and had that happen plenty of times. It's, it's okay. But you might notice it. Maybe not. Maybe something else. The Buddha experienced pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings after his enlightenment. It's, a hap- it's a happening. It just is a given. What we're interested in is this uh, conditioning around it. That's where we're, we want to look. In his book um, on the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, Joseph Goldstein, his beautiful, great book, goes through the, this whole teaching um, in a very methodical way. He gave a series of 45 or more talks on, on this uh, teaching and that was the basis for the book. At one point in, in the chapter on feeling, he says, mindfulness of feeling 
is one of the master keys that unlocks the deepest patterns of our conditioning. The sense of, of mindfulness directed here, having this, this very powerful unlocking potential. And, and it's through unlocking these deep patterns that this freedom of the, that the Buddha, the liberation, is to be found. And the reason that it's singled out and given so much importance, I think, and why the Buddha dedicated one of the four established of mindfulness to mindfulness of this is, is because there is such deep conditioning, deeply habituated re, uh, reactivity in the mind, responses, conditioning, habits around it. The Buddha, in many different places, made a distinction between uh, two kinds of people. He called the uninstructed worldling and the instructed noble disciple. So uh, here comes a long, boring sutta quotation. Bhikkhus, when the uninstructed worldling is contacted by bodily painful feeling, they sorrow, grieve, and lament. They weep, beating their breast, and become distraught. They feel two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose someone were to strike a person with a dart and then strike that person immediately afterwards with a second dart so that the person would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, they feel two feelings, the bodily one and a mental one. Being contacted by that painful feeling, they harbor aversion towards it. The underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling lies behind this. Being contacted by painful feeling, they seek delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than sense pleasure. This Bhikkhus is called an uninstructed worldling who is attached to birth, aging, and death, who is attached to sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is attached to suffering, I say. So this first dart is going to happen. Life will contain painful feelings, painful sensations, bodily ones, mental ones. The second dart the sting of reactivity to it is not a given. And that's often a source of far greater suffering than the initial painful feeling. It's not inevitable. We could say uh, there's a way, this is where we have a chance to to find some, some room to maneuver there. We can't get rid of the first dart as long as we have a body and a mind but we have some possibility to understand and uh, release the deep conditioning around it. Where there is no mindfulness, pleasant feelings have a strong tendency to condition grasping, clinging, wanting in the mind. Unpleasant ones tend to condition aversion, resistance, fear. And neutral ones tend to condition 
uh, more deluded states of disconnection, of boredom, of just not seeing, not being there, not being present. So these, these feelings are not the problem. And our goal is not to somehow make, it, make them stop happening, stop having these feelings. That's not the goal and it's not possible. But we need to find a wise way to relate to them because what happens, and we see this in our own lives in the world, is that our search for happiness is this quest to string together as many pleasant feelings as possible in a row at the same time trying to avoid having any unpleasant ones. And we see this movement, we can see it in our own lives, we can see it in the world around us. It's running things so much of the time, if we look. It's moving towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant. And it can become so extreme in, in the kinds of addictive behaviors that we see that some of us may have struggled with in our lives. This, this craving for either a pleasant feeling or for not having to feel the unpleasant one. And it can, it can completely run our lives. And anyone who has struggled with this at any point knows this all too well. Now, there are times when it may make sense to actively turn towards and seek out pleasant feelings. Sukha Vedana. There may be times in our life and our practice when we are going through, we may go through times when there is a, um, there's so much unpleasantness happening. And it seems like that's all we're experiencing. It's so predominant that the mind may start to wither in the face of the onslaught of it. This does happen. This can happen at times. And, and then it is skillful to, to look for, actively seek pleasant experiences. And pleasant experiences are great. You know, we, we need them to stay balanced. There's, there's nothing wrong with pleasant experiences. And it's really important because we can find ourselves you know, turning away from, from it as though it always means that we're we're attached or grasping at it. And, and avoiding unpleasant is, is natural. It's not that we should not try our best to live our lives, steer them in, in ways where we, where we, you know, try to maximize what's yeah, good and easeful for us. But we don't have control over it. We can't have it only be pleasant and we can't avoid unpleasant. Learning how to be with it in a balanced and wise way is really profound in our own lives, in the world. And the Buddha stressed mindfulness of this for an important reason. I think that wars have probably been started because of someone's inability to be with an unpleasant feeling. Cannot bear this, so I'm going to start a war because maybe then I won't feel so powerless or whatever. You know, wars don't just start. They, they start in the mind. <laughs> and we might be able to see the seeds of them in our own mind. But with mindfulness, we do not have to start a war. 
of being able to relate wisely to this, this ceaseless flow of changing feeling tone is really, uh, it's not a small thing in our lives in the world. And this is where the power and the liberating potential of mindfulness starts to really, uh, really shines, shines through. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of simple, but it's actually so profound. I mean, take a moment right now and just sense into the quality of mindfulness, of awareness. You just ask yourself the question, is there awareness? Or if you prefer, am I aware? It's a useful and great question to ask because you get to always answer yes. You cannot ask if there's enough awareness to ask the question, it's there. So in the asking, it's, it's highlighted, it comes forth. You can't say no to that. You maybe weren't aware before I suggested you look, and you might not be in the next moment, but in that moment, yes, it's right there. Ask it right now. Is there awareness? Yes. Simple, it's natural, it's not special and totally special. So the instructed noble disciple, second kind of being that the Buddha spoke about, one who abides in mindful awareness. This is us in our mindful moments. The experience with contact with pleasant and unpleasant, neither of those is potentially very different. Bhikkhus, practitioners, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by bodily painful feeling, they do not sorrow, grieve, or lament. They do not weep beating their breast and become distraught. They feel one feeling, a bodily one, and not a mental one. Suppose someone were to strike a person with a dart, but did not strike them immediately afterwards with a second dart. That person would feel a feeling caused by one dart only. So too, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a bodily painful feeling, they feel that one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Being being contacted by that painful feeling, they harbor no aversion towards it. Being contacted by painful feeling, they do not seek delight in sensual pleasure. If they feel a pleasant feeling, they feel it detached. If they feel a painful feeling, they feel it detached. If they feel a neither pleasant nor painful feeling, they feel it detached. This practitioner is a noble disciple who is detached from birth, aging, and death, who is detached from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is detached from suffering. This is the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. Now, I think we can read the word detached here. Uh, Maybe a better way of Wording that might be with equanimity, with a balanced mind, with a mind that is not reactive. The detached might seem disconnected. That's not what that's pointing to. This is pretty clear. And I think uh, many, maybe most of us, maybe all of us have had this experience at times. When mindfulness was there and we were contacted with these feelings and there was not the second dart. 
and there's uh, ease and freedom and uh, kind of, yeah, a kind of liberation at that time that's striking. What's also striking is, is how powerfully embedded our deeply conditioned habits of grasping and aversion. You know, we see this so often. How often do we assess our a sitting, a period of sitting meditation, a good one, is a higher percentage of pleasant feelings. A bad one is a higher percentage of unpleasant ones. Anybody notice this? I certainly do. We can see this leaning into the pleasant, backing away from resisting or retreating from the unpleasant. And even when we have experienced the freedom and ease of this non-reactivity, maybe many times over many years, these habitual responses still show up. I've seen this so often in my own practice, in my life. You know, you'd think that the mind would, would know better. It's like when the mind opens into this profound equanimity at times. And it's just like, it's the best thing. And it's just natural and normal. And like, yeah, okay. And then it doesn't, it goes away. I mean, what's up with that? It's wacky. It's like, you'd think the mind would know better and, and, and abide there, but, but it doesn't. And the longer I practice, the greater is my respect for the power and depth of this deep conditioning. Do not diminish the power that this has and the, and the depth to which it is embedded in the woven into the fabric of our being. That doesn't mean it's a hopeless situation, but, but it's there. And along with that kind of respect, that's a certain kind, what has also grown is my respect for anyone who would seek to understand and release that because that's not the easy way to go. Walking this path to its completion is not the easy choice. But it's the best choice, in my view. So the idea of completely uh, abandoning, relinquishing, uprooting these, these deep habits of mind, these underlying tendencies, the Buddha said, the underlying tendency to aversion. So subtle, so subtle, more and more subtle we see it as our practice unfolds. That might seem impossible, but the Buddha said of this path, if this were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. I wouldn't even ask you to try, but because it is possible, I do ask you to try. And we do it in each moment when we bring mindfulness to our experience. And the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta are very simple, straightforward. When feeling a pleasant feeling, one knows I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one knows I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, a neutral feeling, one knows I feel a neutral feeling. The simple recognition of that, it doesn't say then judge and compare and get all worked up and, and tell yourself 
how worthless you are, or whatever you might add to that. It's just connecting with it in that simple way, and that's possible in, mo- in any moment. And so we might explore this a bit. I think being careful that we don't turn it into some kind of big project or some analysis where I've got to see what it is every moment will drive ourselves crazy. It's happening so fast and so constantly, every sense contact over and over and over. But we have this chance here and, and the conditions here support uh, opening to this. And there may be times when it presents itself or when, we, when it's appropriate to, to turn towards it. So we could take a period of time. It could even just be a few minutes in a sitting meditation and just kind of tune to this aspect of the experience, of our experience. And sometimes using the tool of mental labeling can be really helpful. We just notice, oh, pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And just noticing it for a little bit, just shining a light on that. Even, even doing it for a little while can show, oh, it's just constantly coming and going. It's very transient. Sometimes when the mindfulness is really steady and the conditions are, are really good, we can see the contact and the pleasant feeling, contact at the, at the body, contact at the ears, and the and the feeling arising. We can see that in that refined way. At other times, we might just become aware of of liking or disliking in the mind. Maybe at mealtimes, we notice liking. And that'll shine a light on the pleasant feeling that's conditioning the liking. Just to see that. Oh, there it is. Pleasant. A bite of food that we like something that we dislike, some sensation or something like that. You know, we overlook the pleasant and unpleasant. It has this key role there, worth seeing that. Maybe we become aware of of grasping or clinging or holding in the mind and we can see, oh, there's, there's a pleasant feeling there, trying to hold on to that. Or the reverse of that with aversion. Maybe we notice that we're being pulled into a fantasy in the mind. And we might notice, oh, the pleasant, this pleasant feeling associated with that thoughts. And that's the providing the fuel that's keeping us going. It's dry, keeping us going back and back and back and back. A pleasant feeling there. Just to see this, see how this functions. Last week, uh, Caroline mentioned uh, in, I don't know if it was in the morning or in her talk, but she mentioned uh, this refrain that happens in the Satipatthana Sutta, and it's, it follows each section of instructions. I think it's repeated uh, maybe 12 or 13 times through this entire, through this, this uh, sutta. So it was definitely emphasized by the Buddha. I want to read a part of it because I think it's particularly powerful when uh, investigating and contemplating uh, Vedana. One abides contemplating feelings in their nature of arising, in their nature of passing away, or in their nature of both arising and passing away, or mindfulness that there is feeling is established 
in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how in regard to the feelings, one abides contemplating feelings as feelings. This this mindful recognition, even in the simplest way of knowing there is feeling. Being aware that it's there. And this specificity of noticing in its nature to arise, its nature to pass away, it's a nature to both arise and pass away. It, It highlights this impermanence that is this impermanent transient flow, this constant flow and flux of changing. And this seeing this over time, it it lessens, diminishes, weakens our tendency to get identified with it. And we see that it's it's just part of this passing show, this passing flow. We're less uh, likely to attach, latch on to the pleasant ones, less likely to become fearful, reactive, uh, resistant to the unpleasant ones. And there are times when we just can meet the unpleasantness just as it is. It's just known, ah, it's unpleasant. And that's, that's it. And it can arise and pass without it destroying our peace of mind. And we can appreciate contact with pleasant. We can open to that. We know pleasant can enjoy delight in it. And we're not falling into clinging, grasping, or into despair when it passes away, as it will. And so we can start to get a taste, in moments at least, of this uh, independence the Buddha was pointing to. Since one abides independent, not clinging to anything, We have this sense that it is possible to live our life in a wise way in relation to this flow of feelings, of feeling tona vedana. And the spacious ease, the freedom, the, the liberation of mind and heart that we taste there points to um, this possibility of a mind that is not entranced by these things and not ruled by them, not driven by them possibility of a deep, lasting kind of freedom or ease. So I'm going to end today with a, a short excerpt from the Chulatanha Sakaya Sutta. It circles nicely back around to that refrain from the Satipatthana Sutta. Whatever feeling one feels, whether painful or pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant, one abides contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment. Contemplating thus, one does not cling to anything in the world. When one does not cling, one is not agitated. When one is not agitated, one personally attains Nibbana.
So I offer this for your reflection this evening and uh, thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.